All right, we'll continue in our service. Uh, the passage on which our teaching is based comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Uh, please follow along with me on the screen. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works, with, works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ed. Now, if you're just joining us today, uh, this is the second part of this wonderful passage uh, that we'll be spending time uh, learning and getting to know. There's something that I've learned about humans. Inside each and every single one of us is a deep longing, a craving for greatness, for glory. Inside each and every single one of us is a deep hunger for glory. If there's a video or post on our social media feed that happens to go viral, or if something we accomplished at work is celebrated in the news, we're ecstatic and elated by the attention. We want to be a part of something great, something important, something significant. This desire for greatness and glory is so strong that we're willing to pay money in order to pretend we're pursuing something glorious. How else do you explain the, uh, why movies, video games, and sports are trillion-dollar enterprises? We're willing to shell out cash so that we can go to the theaters and for a couple hours suspend reality and identify with characters who are saving the world. We're willing to invest hours of our day playing video games so that in that moment we think we are a Navy SEAL fighting against terrorism. We're willing to shell out gobs of cash and watch our favorite artists perform in a sold-out arena because there's something about singing your favorite song with tens of thousands of other fans that make you feel you're part of something otherworldly. All of us long for glory. It's what separates man from animal. For animals, if they are well-fed, if they have shelter, if their basic necessities are met, life is good. I've interviewed an animal, so I know. But for mankind, we're different. 
Even if we have our basic necessities met, we want more. We're not satisfied. We're restless. We crave glory. Now here in our passage, Paul reminds us that as Christians, we get to be a part of something glorious, something significant, something magnificent. We are invited into something even more glorious than winning the Nobel Peace Prize or performing at Carnegie Hall or even winning Wimbledon. Here in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, Paul invites us to experience the, the height, depth, length, and width of God's love. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not discounting our pursuits of earthly glory and joy. There is nothing wrong with singing your favorite song with thousands of other fans. There's nothing wrong with feeling pride and joy when your child gives the valedictorian speech at their graduation. Those are definitely moments to celebrate and even pursue. But the Bible tells us that when God created this world, he did so in a way where he would embed his glory into the things of this world so that mankind who more and more discovers the world will see these clues and look for the creator. You see, these experiences he gives and embeds in this world were never meant to be an end in and of themselves, which is why they never fully satisfy us and we want something more. No, these are clues that were embedded to design us to pursue the original glory. So if you're mesmerized by the beauty of music, then know that it is but a distant echo of the original sound emanating from God. If you are caught up in the majesty of, of the Himalayas, then know that it's but a dim reflection of the majestic being of God, if your breath is taken away by the sheer power of a thundering waterfall, then know that it's but a distant ripple of the almighty, awesome power of God. And so here in our passage, Paul is inviting us to witness the original glory, the source of all beauty. He says, I want you to comprehend, I want you to taste, experience, wrap your arms around the length, width, height, and depth of God's love. I want you to see the source of all things stunning and mesmerizing. Now, some aspirations and pursuits are so lofty so grand that it's too much for a single individual to accomplish on their own. For example, if you want to teach a child a story found in the Bible, that can be done 
Just do a little bit of research and you've got your Bible lesson. But if you want to host a weekend Bible camp with 60 plus children filled with music, dance, crafts, games, and teaching, and more, you cannot do that by yourself. As amazing as our sister Jamie is, our event coordinator, she cannot host the Bible camp on her own. In fact, she told me we have 42 volunteers helping her put on this weekend's events. Explains why there's so many missing here. The, the, the grander the pursuit, the loftier the vision, the greater the necessity will be to cooperate and collaborate in community. Some things cannot be done in isolation on your own. Now, if putting on a weekend VBS is intensive, how much more exploring the height, depth, and width of God's love? That pursuit is greater than walking on Mars. You cannot properly plummet God's love on your own. Can you get a taste of God's love on your own? Absolutely. Can you experience God's presence in the word, in your prayer closet, singing your favorite worship song in the car? Absolutely. But if you want to plummet the depths of God's love, you need community. You can't do that by yourself. And this communal aspect is seen in verse 18 where Paul says that our pursuit of understanding the length, height, width, and depth of God's love must be done, quote, with all the saints. Not without the saints, but with all the saints. And this collective nature of our pursuit is underscored all the more when you recognize and see what stands at the background of our passage. And so today, we're going to go a little nerdy because we're going to explore what is the springboard that serves as the foundation for Paul's prayer here in these verses. Because I believe the more we're able to grasp what's at the foundation of this passage, the more we'll be able to appreciate what he's inviting us to do. So to figure out what shapes Paul's prayer here, you need to look at the first words of, his, uh, of this passage. If you look at verse 14, Paul begins with, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And so Paul is telling us, there is something that is launching him into prayer, inspiring him to kneel before the Father and pray. And so what is this reason? Well, naturally, you need to look at what comes before this passage. And when you look at what comes before, Paul writes earlier in verse 6, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Saying the Gentiles are co-heirs with the Jews in their partnership with the gospel. And then even earlier before that, in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, which Pastor Lewis did a beautiful job unpacking for us, 
Paul writes, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is the springboard for Paul's enthusiasm expressed in his prayer. It's the realization that God is incorporating Jews and Gentiles together to form a new temple of God. What gets Paul excited, what moves his heart to prayer is a realization that God is fashioning a new temple consisted of Jewish and Gentile stones. Now, some of you are probably thinking, what's the big idea? What's so significant about that? Well, I understand the lack of excitement over this realization, especially if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. But for Paul, who was an expert of the Old Testament scriptures, this was a staggering development in history. And so let me help you trace the theme of temple found in the Bible so that you can better appreciate what is going on here. You see, the temple of God is one of those threads that's woven throughout the 66 books of the Bible. Yes, I know the Bible's consisted of 66 books and they all seem so different from one another, but God is the ultimate author. And when you put all these books together, they form one unified story with the beginning, middle, and end. And there are different themes that weave and link these books together. And one of those themes is the theme of the temple of God. Now, let me ask you, when does God's temple first appear in the Bible? Most people would say, naturally, it appears when God commands the nation of Israel to build a temple which Solomon initiated and completed. However, the temple of God actually appears even before Solomon's temple, even before the tabernacle. The first temple appears in the Garden of Eden. Remember, the temple, for those of you uh, who don't know, is the intersection between heaven and earth. The temple is the place where God, in a special way, would come down and commune with his people. Now, what happened in the Garden of Eden? We read that God communed with Adam and Eve. God walked with them, dwelled with them, much like he would later on in the temple. Not only that, but theologians have noted that God gives Adam two specific commands when it comes to the garden. He tells Adam, Adam, I want you to work and keep the garden. These two verbs, work and keep, 
appear again later on. Can you guess where? When God commands the Levitical priests to work and keep the temple. And so theologians argue that not only is the Garden of Eden the first temple, but that Adam was the first priest. What is more, when you look at the design and the details of the tabernacle and the temple that were later built, you'll realize there's a lot of garden imagery everywhere. There's plants, there's leaves, there's trees. It's as if God was recreating the Garden of Eden with the temple. In fact, one of the main pieces of furniture was uh, the, uh, I lost my train of thought, was the, um, oh my gosh, um, the lampstand. I was looking for that word. The lampstand. And can you guess what the lampstand looked like? It looked like the tree of life. And so with all of these parallels connecting the Garden of Eden with the tabernacle and temple, we see how the garden was the first temple of God. But what happened there? Adam and Eve would rebel. Instead of living in obedience to the Lord and walking in fellowship with him, they turned their backs on God, went their own way, and did what was right in their own eyes, and they are banished from the garden, and the temple is no more. Thousands of years later, God appears to the nation of Israel, commands them to build a mobile tabernacle in the wilderness, and then a more permanent temple in the promised land. And with the construction of the temple and the tabernacle, God is communicating to the Israelites, just like I once dwelled with Adam and Eve back in the garden, I will dwell with you. We will dwell together and walk together. And so after the construction of the temple, we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, it's worth our time looking at, when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord said that he would dwell in total darkness. I have indeed built an exalted temple for you, a place for your dwelling forever. You can imagine the hearts of the Israelites being filled to the brim as they see the glory cloud of God filling the temple. God is with us. Unfortunately, history would repeat itself again. Just like their first parents, the nation of Israel would turn their backs on God, reject his love, and do what is right in their own eyes. And so what happened? They are removed. The temple is destroyed, and all hopes of dwelling with God in such an intimate way looked forever lost. Until the prophet Zechariah comes. In chapter 2, he breathes hope back into Israel's sails. He writes in verse 10, Daughter Zion, shout for joy and be glad, 
for I am coming to dwell among you. You could hear their ears perking up. What? Because right now when they're hearing their word, these words, there is no temple. What is more, there's a development. Verse 11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and become my people. I will dwell among you and you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. Zechariah sees a day where the temple will come again and God will dwell with his people. Lo and behold, in John chapter 1, we see the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. John tells us in verse 14, the word became flesh. And what? Dwelt among us. The word used for dwelt is the Greek translation of the word tabernacle. The temple of God has come. But this time, it's not a physical temple. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And when you watch Jesus' ministry, you see him not only ministering to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. And later on, Jesus would make the identification all the more explicit when he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And we know he's talking about himself. And so in the New Testament, the apostles recognized that for all those who believe in Jesus, they are then incorporated into this new temple of God, except this time the building blocks of God's temple are no longer stones and bricks made by human hands. Rather, they're made up of people, living stones, as Peter writes, Jewish stones, Gentile stones, redeemed by Jesus' blood. This explains, this whole temple motif explains why in our prayer, Paul emphasizes the aspect of God filling us. He says in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In verse 19, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Why is he emphasizing dwelling in our hearts filled with the fullness of God? It's because Paul sees in the background the glory cloud filling the Old Testament temple and now he's saying God fills us Today in the church, just as he filled the temple of old, he fills the church with himself today. But to simply equate the new covenant temple with the old one doesn't do justice to what Jesus accomplished. Because you see, the new covenant temple far exceeds the old one. How? Well, the old one was static, fixed, and localized. If you wanted to commune with God, you had to make a pilgrimage hundreds of miles to the temple of God. But the new one is different, isn't it? 
It's organic, it's fluid, it's ever-expanding. It's not localized, it's globalized. It's wherever two or three are gathered in his name, God is with them. And so the, the, the glory of the temple, the boundaries of the temple are ever-expanding across the globe. Another way that this temple is better is that it's no longer characterized by fear and insecurity. In the old temple, only the high priest could enter in and actually commune with God on behalf of the Israelite nation. And even still, once a year, and even still, I wouldn't be surprised with a lot of fear they would sacrifice hundreds of bulls and goats as a way to atone for their sins. And I wouldn't be surprised if the high priest was nervous on that day. Did we sacrifice enough? This past year was really hard. We, we idolized so many other gods. Not sure if that was enough. But in the new temple, what paves the way is no longer the blood of bulls and goats, but the book of Hebrews tells us it's the righteous son of God, the perfect lamb of God who was sacrificed once and for all for many. This is why Paul embeds in these verses that we have confidence and boldness in before the throne of God that fear and insecurity are no more. You see, this cycle that we see in the Old Testament of mankind rebelling and being rejected is finally broken because Jesus' blood has paved the way for us sinners. This realization helps us understand why Paul bursts out in jubilation in verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Paul is saying this new temple is way beyond any of us could ever imagine or dream of. Who would have thunk that God would dwell in us, in us sinners, that blows our minds, and so it leads him to worship. The new temple of God, paved by the blood of the Son of God, made up of living stones of Jews and Gentiles that's ever expanding across the globe, is greater than anything we could have ever dreamed or imagined. Let me land this plane. Friends, do you long for greatness? Do you want to participate in something glorious? Something that will have eternal ramifications? Look no further than the church. Here is where God's glory can be found 
where God's love is experienced, where God's forgiveness is received, where God's wisdom is displayed. Now, I know what you're thinking. God, glory found in the church? Why would he do that? Jeff, I grew up in the church. In fact, I was a pastor's kid. I know what happens in the church. I know how much fighting there is. I know how much conflict there is. I've seen church splits. I've seen the underbelly of the church. Why in the world would God dwell with such people? It's kind of like taking the most expensive scotch in the world. I looked this up. The most expensive scotch is a Macallan Lalique. A 50-year-old single malt scotch is priced at $250,000 for a little bottle like this. $250,000. Imagine if someone took that Macallan and poured it into a paper Dixie cup. You'd be like, what in the world? You can't pour it in a, a paper cup like that. Do you know what that is? It's the same reaction. Here is God Almighty who created the universe, and he's going to pour himself into the local church. And where the angels are looking at God and saying, what are you doing? You could do better. Indeed, God's choice of dwelling place doesn't make much sense. But one thing is for sure. God is at least consistent. When you read the Bible, he consistently identifies with, walks with, down and out people. He identifies and calls cowards, Misfits, murderers. He calls the sick, the poor, the orphan, the minority, those living on the margins. Even when Jesus came into this world and became a man, he grew up in a no-name town with a no-name family. He attracted no-name people from no-name backgrounds. Yes, I don't understand why God would choose to dwell amongst the local church of all places, but at least he's very consistent. And we know the church is filled with broken and sinful people. We shouldn't be surprised because the reason why we gather is because we have a perfect and loving Savior. The church is a hospital filled with spiritually diseased and sick people who gather together because we find healing in Jesus' name. And so the church is filled with people desperate for love, desperate for forgiveness, desperate for healing. So what kind of people do you think will gather here? At the same time, though the church is filled with broken people and has its warts and bruises, I can honestly tell you that the church is the one place in all the world where I have witnessed God's beauty and glory most clearly. 
I have witnessed brothers and sisters recover from betrayal. I have witnessed husbands and wives heal from adultery, reconciled after literally being at each other's throats. I have witnessed Republicans and Democrats worshiping alongside each other, inviting them to each other's homes, sharing a meal with one another. I have seen countless brothers and sisters serve sacrificially, love generously. I have seen courage in the face of chemo, joy in the midst of deep suffering and sorrow. The point I'm trying to make is that at first blush, the church may seem like it's the last place you expect to see God. But when you take a deeper look, you find generous people who love fiercely because they themselves are fiercely loved. Dear friends, if you want to participate in something glorious, then look no further than the church. God is at work here. Come out Sundays and worship with us. Become a member. Join a life group. Serve on a team. Knit your hearts with one another. Do the hard work of doing life together. And there you will see God show up in ways you never expected. Let's pray together. Father, your wisdom continues to confound us as we see how your glory is revealed through jars of clay, through the local church. And yet, Lord, you've made it clear that if we want to comprehend the length and width and height and depth of your love, we need to do that through the church. We need to do that with one another. And so, Lord, I pray that here at New Life, we will witness your glory. We will witness your love as we continue to serve one another, worship together, and strive to proclaim the gospel to a lost world. Thank you, O oh Lord, for uh, reminding us, Lord, of uh, the theme of temple and how we now play a vital role in that development. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.